Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based cat accompanied true crime show that seeks out the cases of interest of obscurity and the often unfamiliar from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. Curating these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's absolutely bugger all without you folks listening in though, the wonderful enthusiasts who make the show so worthwhile. Which I thank you all for doing so and I express my extreme wishes that as you join me today, then you and those closest to you are all good, you're all safe and you're all well. So big thanks out as ever to begin, firstly to all who've gotten in touch concerning the Thriller arc to date. Now I gather that it's been very well received, which I'm very very glad about, believe me. And once again, and I may have said it before, but I'm surprised just how unfamiliar a case this one is to some. And I also think that in the light of current trends, it's one that has TV drama written all over it this one, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that it should be, of course, I just think it's the kind of case that would be. It's also been one to date to have put me in touch with some truly remarkable people who've been kind enough to take the time out and speak to me, which I feel truly fortunate about and even humbled. So thank you very much, all. Cheers also to both my returning and new Patreon supporters, with shout-outs going out this time around to Ashley, Kay, Anne Rea, Stephanie U. Pritchard, and Verity Hill, who has opted to annually support the show. It's lovely of you to give your kind support, guys. It really does mean the world as ever. Now you too, that's you folks, not the band, and well, unless Bono wants to skip buying sunglasses for a bloody month and chuck a few quid my way, you folks can also support the show should you wish, like those I've just mentioned, for only a couple of shekels each month, and that by doing so gets you access to bonus episodes of The Enthusiast, such as New Year's Evil, Maths Misunderstandings and Murder, Disfigured, or the latest one that dropped just the other day, slightly late, Predators in the Park. And there are some right tales to be had in that back catalogue too, I tell you. Now it's so simple to do that it's already a contestant on the next series of Love Island. You just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there. It's got the same show logo and everything and all like that. Boom, Robert's your mother's brother. Or even easier, you can just use the ever clickable link that's always in the episode show notes that will take you right to it. And now, back to Thriller then. So over the past few episodes, I've introduced you to Taller and Shorter, as we've called them. And as we've heard about their monstrous catalogue of crimes that began, as far as is known anyway, in the summer of 1982, and that rapidly escalated both in frequency and certainly severity. I say monstrous, I was having this conversation the other day with someone concerning the case, and it really is the only word to describe this pit, at least the only one you can broadcast because these crimes truly are that, monstrous. The catalogue of rape the pair committed was horrendous enough, with even one of them attacking on his own at times. But then it sank to a fouler depth and added murder to it, taking the lives of 19-year-old Alison Day, 15-year-old schoolgirl Marcia Tamboza, and as we heard in the previous episode, 29-year-old newlywed of just four weeks, Anne Locke. The hunt for this pair caused three different police forces, Surrey, Hertfordshire and the Met, to amalgamate into a multi-force inquiry codenamed Operation Trinity, 
which was at the time the biggest since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper in the 1970s. Nothing was to be left, no stone unturned. Priority number one was to catch this pair before they struck again. And to do so, police were even willing to utilise an untested investigative tool, one that was to prove groundbreaking and crucial to the hunt. And it begins with a man sat on a train, merely reading a newspaper. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the fifth part of the thriller arc, an episode that I've entitled Profile. Travelling home by train from London to Guildford one day, Thursday the 9th of January 1986. At the start of his 40 minute journey, the man sat in the train carriage unfurled his copy of the London Evening Standard newspaper and took note of the front page story, a description of the crimes that were being investigated by Operation Heart, at that time a catalogue of some 24 sexual assaults and attacks that had been carried out in the North London area beginning in 1982. Although the list of the details of these in this article were brief, there were some dates and times mentioned, and interestingly to the reader, though the article claimed police believed the linked series to all involve the same man, in a number of crimes, two men were involved. So he settled down for the journey, greatly intrigued by this article, and began to see if there were any obvious patterns notable from the list, two general psychological principles running through his mind. The first being that people influence each other's actions. The second, as most human behaviour develops or changes over time, what was changing here from the first attack to the latest in the series? He decided to separate the attacks involving two men and the attacks committed by a single offender into different columns, thinking that if Operation Heart had definitively linked each of the attacks, then the differences between one offender attacks and two may reveal something about each individual from a psychological viewpoint. But a list such as this printed in the newspaper did reveal very little. There were the graphic headings, granted, but there were so many other things that could be focused upon further. For example, the time and days of the week in which the attacks occurred on, where they clustered over weekends, which would suggest attackers who were employed throughout the week or weren't free to go out and attack women or were they scattered through a mix of weekdays and weekends, which would suggest offenders without regular employment, or staggered shift workers perhaps, which would then lead on to, well, are they manually employed, etc, etc. Like a psychological onion, which is a fabulous name for a band or an album title there, if I say so myself. I thought it as soon as I wrote it. So before we go on further, I should explain something. The passenger on the train settling down to do this, to dissect these offences into a table to try to define parameters or what could be indicated about each of the offenders. He wasn't just bored shitless, he didn't pick it up instead because the crossword in the paper seemed too difficult to even comprehend. He was a professor of psychology at the University of Surrey named David Cantor, who'd begun his scientific career in the field of architectural psychology 
studying how people interacted with buildings, publishing and providing consultancy on how offices, schools, prisons, housing and other building forms were designed, as well as exploring how people made sense of these large-scale environments. By that time a much-published academic, he had gone on to study human behaviour in the reactions that one would have in an emergency or a dangerous incident such as a fire, and had the previous year, just two months before he sat on that train, attended a meeting at Scotland Yard, where he'd been invited by two senior detectives to discuss the feasibility of detectives using behavioural science as an investigative tool inquiring how psychological research could complement and parallel groundwork, experience and police intuition with scientifically established principles and facts. Now, it was established by then, albeit still in a very early stage, with the FBI across the pond over in Quantico. If you haven't read or watched Mindhunter yet, then you're missing out because the casting alone in it is fabulous but it wasn't really in a recognised form in the UK. Now there had been slight dalliances with it, shall we say, in a couple of cases that I've covered here on the show, one of them quite high profile as I record this, the other, well, there's a Patreon episode about it. But it wasn't the recognised tool that it is today, and so forward-thinking officers with some seniority at Scotland Yard had made steps to discuss whether such a thing could happen. Now this meeting had been a very successful one with both parties leaving with plenty of food for thought and if only there was a likely example of a series of crimes that could be studied and psychologically dissected as they were being investigated. And then boom, Professor Cantor two months later picked up the Evening Standard newspaper and read that headline. So he began by columnizing the events column for the single rapist, a column for the rapes committed by two men, the dates and times for each as mentioned in the article separated into these, and working backwards to work out missing details, such as which days of the week each date would correspond to, Cantor had soon produced a manageable summary of the offences. Now it was clear enough to him that he forwarded this cursory table, along with his thoughts, in a letter to then Detective Chief Superintendent Thelma Wagstaff. Point of note, who was to go on to become commander of the CID in the Metropolitan Police, and who passed away sadly in March of this year, aged 82, but who was at the time one of the senior officers that he'd luncheoned with two months previously. Now an extract from this letter explains, I quote, I had a look through details of the recent series of rapes given in the London Standard on the 9th of January 1986, the series where two or one man was involved. The details I have are very sketchy, but I wondered if anybody had prepared a summary table like the one enclosed. Although rough and ready, it shows that the individual acting on his own is very much a recent event and tends to come in runs after both have been involved. I have no evidence that the one individual is the same person, but if so, then one could see something about the relationship between the two as a possible clue to the entire series. For example, a scenario mentioned in the press that had one of them working near the railways and only meeting up with the other under certain circumstances, possibly work-related, could lead to exploring the evidence to see whether there may be some recurring event that brought them together and that led to one going it alone on other occasions. 
This is a speculation that we could possibly check out more thoroughly in order to see where the hypothesized patterns would emerge. Now it was to be several months after this, but Professor Cantor was to receive a request to attend Hendon Police College, where by that time, an incident room had been set up collating multiple inquiries under the code name of Operation Trinity. I had the privilege of some days ago having a very interesting conversation with a retired detective who had worked on the Operation Bluebell strand of this inquiry, whose recollections have been so valuable in creating this episode to really have, and who helped set the scene at the time for me. Now today, all of this material can be brought up for investigators with a simple keystroke, but back in 1986, I'm sure you can imagine, you've seen the films and the TV shows, and if you've studied past crimes such as the Yorkshire Ripper Inquiry, perfect example, then the photographs and footage available of the incident rooms at the time is a plenty, and it shows a mass of information that are, that's up on the walls or on blackboards for all to see. Charts, lists, tables, photographs, the lot, and this was no different. These listed the victims in each of the attacks, descriptions that they'd given of their attacker or attackers, and features to each of the crimes highlighted in different colours, for example, the use of a knife, whether the victims were bound, and so on. In that incident room that morning were the heads of three major investigations, Detective Superintendent Ken Worker, leading Operation Hart, Detective Superintendent John Hurst, heading Operation Bluebell, the inquiry team searching for the killer of Marcia Tamboza, and Detective Superintendent Charles Farquhar, who's leading Operation Lee, the hunt for the killer of Alison Day. They'd come together there following an examination of forensic and behavioural evidence in each of the separate offences, which had led them to believe that the series of rapes and the two murders had been committed by the same man, believing at the time that one of the pair of rapists who had terrorised North London for the previous four years had at first begun to strike as a lone offender but had then gravitated to murder. That morning, the 13th of June, they'd agreed that all different teams should be coordinated and brought together under a joint operation, which led, as we heard previously, to Operation Trinity, at that point the largest coordinated multi-force inquiry since the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe. And placed in overall command of the inquiry was the head of Surrey CID, Detective Chief Superintendent Vincent McFadden. Now a quietly spoken man, but one whose tone and gravity is seniority when heard, and there are several examples available of this through searching concerning the case, Professor Cantor could hardly refuse when Detective Superintendent McFadden asked him, Can you help us catch this man before he kills again? Now Professor Cantor's previous discussion in his tentative list had been concerning solely the amalgamated list of sexual assaults, but two murders that were being linked to the series now give things a new impetus. And ultimately, how do you say no to something like that? All he could do was try, he told him, but he explained that such an analysis would be time-consuming based against his existing role at the University of Surrey. In all the years that I've spent looking at true crime, I'm yet to come across a profiler who says, oh yeah, I'll do it, I was only going to count me rice tonight anyway. These people are always busier than ever, aren't they? 
and so he asked Detective Superintendent McFadden if there was any chance of any assistance to undertake the analysis, to which he was told, two bods will be with you at the start of the following week. Boom. Detective Inspector Jim Blan and Detective Constable Rupert Heritage from the Metropolitan Police and Surrey Constabulary respectively, and who had each worked on the squads of Operations Heart and Bluebell, arrived at the University of Surrey that Monday morning to begin what was very much a steep learning curve for both sides, but being joined ultimately by Surrey Detective Constable Leslie Cross, whose name came up in the conversation that I had recently, and one who was described as a goddess held in awe by other members of the inquiry team, due to operational requirements sometimes restricting Detective Inspector Bland's involvement in the project. Now from this initial meeting, it was decided that the first task was to ascertain as best as possible which crimes had been committed by the same man and that the best initial source of material to analyse would be the rapes that were collated by Operation Heart, which provided the more overt behavioural information. Thus, a research room was provided for the trio, sometimes foursome, to work from at Guildford Police Headquarters and the process began. See, from studies that we'd done of other incidents like fires, um, we knew you can build up a picture of a person and, and get some understanding of, the, of them without actually meeting them. And we felt that, that probably with material the police had that a psychologist could do something with. But this was the first time we'd ever done anything like this and we really didn't know what the police had available to them. And I'm sure they didn't really have any clear understanding of what we might make available to them. So it was a learning experience for both of us. We had information about the sequences of the attacks and, and, and the patterning over time. And what we did was to systematise that and to try and produce neat tables that would throw up uh, any, any patterns that were in there. And when we looked at it more closely, it did seem one might be able to identify some sort of centre of gravity to these crimes that would indicate an area um, in which he, he might live. So now yet a further list was created, the actions that had occurred in every one of the rapes, with these compared across the series, but with two differences as to how this had previously been done. Firstly, consideration of these actions were broken down into much more detail than the lists that had been up at the Hendon Incident Room, focusing upon specific behaviours like any conversation with the victim or type of threats beforehand, the exact type of sexual activity involved in each attack, post-attack behaviour, that sort of thing, that soon amounted to over a hundred different categories such detail were they looked into. The second difference was to then use computer software that would be able to compare each of the crimes and the actions that had been recorded and then indicate any measure of similarity or difference between these based on the patterns of actions in each. It's commonplace today this is, and it's come so far forward, but back then, in the days of index cards galore and the complex filing system of received information, it was quite revolutionary. And it began to show a clear pattern of results. The lone offender showed clear signs of increasing assurance as the crimes had continued. He displayed a pattern of talking to the victim, beforehand perhaps passing them briefly and asking them the time or when the next train was due, always that railway connection, 
before grabbing them from behind and threatening them with a knife, and he also spent considerably more time with the victim following the assaults, on some occasions sitting and talking to them after it. Now examples of this we've already heard, how he told one victim that he'd done self-defence for about four to five years, and that she should try it herself. Then there was the perhaps misinformation that was drip-fed to others about being in prison or a prison hostel, and on occasion finding out the victim's name and where she lived, even sometimes giving them the fear to find their way home. But because these were not always the same, in each case almost robotic and like a checklist of what you've got to do while offending, this is where the computer came in so useful. To keep some track of all the crimes under Trinity, in the years from 1982 to 1986, Detective Constable Heatheridge had obtained a map of the Greater London area and carefully marked out each of the crimes on this, which Professor Cantor studied and then decided simply, and this seems so obvious to do now, but perhaps it wasn't at the time, that a separate map for each of the four years displaying the attacks that had taken place in that year would be beneficial. So, on separate sheets of transparent acetate sheets placed over a map, and using a colour coordination of red for the attacks committed by two rapists, green for the lone offender, and black squares for each of the three murders, for by that time, Anne Locke had sadly been discovered, and her murder linked to the Trinity Inquiry. So now, each year could be individually looked at, as well as looking at the series as a whole. It was noted that the more recent of the maps, which showed the three murders, had taken place much further afield than the initial cluster of rapes, and working on a principle that we've cited many times to date on the show, that a serial offender will begin, at least, by offending in areas that he or she is familiar with. As the maps were peeled back until finally they showed the series of rapes that had been committed from the midst of 1982 onwards, the initial onslaught, it was highlighted clearly that these were much more clustered around the North London areas of Hampstead, Kilburn and Cricklewood. Reportedly, in as much a question as stating what was obvious before him, Professor Cantor, after studying the 1982 map, pointed to an area circumscribed by the first three offences, the general areas of Kilburn and Cricklewood, and said to the officers, He lives there, doesn't he? It was point one, the centre of gravity. But as the offender went on, they noticed he was changing. He was learning from each crime and becoming more sophisticated and polished at his macabre craft, leading him to operate for more than three years as a successful rapist, for want of a better word. As we've heard, on occasion in the lone assaults, he appeared almost considerate towards the victim, or even displayed feelings of guilt after the attack. He would sometimes offer them money for their fares, or advice on which way to go home, even offer them cigarettes. Contrasting behaviour to someone who then murdered three women, a drastic change in it. The map showed an almost explosion in the crimes, with the area covered increasing outwards each year, showing the rapist's confidence as he continued and exploring outwards as time passed from his initial attacks in an area he they even felt most confident, their familiar home area. By 1986, this had gravitated from North London south to Surrey and then northwards to Hertfordshire, resulting in the murders of Alison Day, Marcia Tamboza and now Anne Locke. 
By the time a week had passed since the discovery of Anne's body and Trinity now adding a third murder to their list, one that was sadly long suspected but could not officially be linked without her body being found, the Trinity Inquiry team needed to know the value that had been placed with the use of a psychologist assisting the inquiry. Therefore, on the 28th of July 1986, a briefing for a handful of senior officers, it was very much regimented back then, with not everyone involved being able to hear what's being offered and able to give their own input as it is today. Concerning what the analysis had so far concluded was given at the University of Surrey by Professor Cantor, who had produced under a set of headings the following, at the time, preliminary profile of the lone offender, which included as follows. Residence has lived in the area circumscribed by the first three cases, the areas of Kilburn or Cricklewood, since 1982 to 83 has probably been arrested sometime between the 24th of October 1982 and January 1984 and probably lived in this area at the time of arrest. Now this point was placed in because as we said, many sources claimed that there were no attacks in 1983, although in the two bodies with one brain episode of the Ark, it did give details of an attempted rape that charges were many years later to be brought for as well as a rape that occurred in early July of that year, and it was thought that an arrest for an unconnected offence, not necessarily a sex crime, but likely an aggressive attack, possibly committed under the influence of alcohol, had caused the rapists to go to ground for a period. He would probably live with a wife or a girlfriend, without children, and that the relationship would be in serious trouble, if so. Physically, he would be in his mid to late 20s, light-haired and no taller than 5 foot 9 inches tall, was right-handed and was an A-secretor. He would also consider himself to be unattractive to women. So in an effort to combat this, he would display interest in martial arts or bodybuilding to bolster his self-esteem. He would hold a fascination for weapons, most likely knives or swords. He would be employed in a skilled or semi-skilled job if he was, involving weekend work or casual labour from about June 1984 onwards. It would be a job that in all probability didn't bring him into too much regular contact with the public. He would be a loner of nature and would usually keep to himself, but would have one or two very close male friends. One of these would be the accomplice in the attacks. He would have probably very little day-to-day -day contact with women, especially in his work situation, but the variety and mixture of his sexual actions during the offences, which would vary, suggested an offender with considerable sexual experience. He would feel the need to dominate women and would harbour fantasies of rape and bondage, which would be evidenced in a collection of videos or magazines that he would retain and displayed in any relationship with a woman that the offender would have. He would likely keep some form of souvenir or trophy from each attack, however small, to be able to relive them and help fuel the fantasy for him. And he would also have some working knowledge of the railway system along which the attacks had happened. Now all of this had been gleaned, as we said, from a study of the geographical locations of the attacks, the displayed behaviour from offender to victim in each, 
and more than a good helping of patience, deductive reasoning and common sense. Never discount good old common sense. It's surely the most valuable thing that you'll ever have in your life. The points had been presented with an overhead projector. Those of you of a certain age will remember them well from school days, I'm sure. And the reasoning behind arriving at each explained in succession. The list was then passed out to senior officers and away they went. Now, the meetings between Professor Cantor and Detective Constables Cross and Heatheridge did continue, albeit not as regularly over the next few months. And the less he began to hear from the inquiry team, seeing no results, the more Cantor considered that what he'd presented had been pretty much a complete waste of time and effort. Until November 1986, when he picked up the newspaper to read the headline that a man had been arrested on suspicion of the murders of three women and a number of rapes in the London area and was now facing charges for these. A proper oh shit moment that must have been eh? and one that was furthered and in his book Criminal Shadows he describes the moment when he got this. One that was furthered by a telephone call he received a couple of days later following these charges being brought by Detective Chief Superintendent Vincent McFadden, who told him, I don't know how you did it, or whether it was just flannel, but that profile you gave us was very accurate, and was very useful to the investigation. Now useful is a bit of an understatement really, because the profile had been applied to Operation Trinity's list of Z-Men, the A-Secretors and had caused one of that number to jump from number 1,594 on the list, right to the top of the pile, based on matching any of the parameters in the profile. An individual who, when initially added to the list the previous year, hadn't been too promising a suspect at the time, but an individual who had a number of times since this inclusion niggled at a number of officers, due to reasons we shall get onto shortly, that this could be at least one of the men they were looking for, the one who at the time it was considered had gone on alone and become a sex killer, rather than a sole sex attacker. A short man, a lot shorter than the height that the offender was described as in the profile, a 28-year-old former carpenter named John Francis Duffy. Duffy's inclusion on the list of Z-Men had come about because in July of the previous year, he had attacked and raped at knife point his estranged wife, Margaret, in a park in Hendon a month after she'd left him. An attack in which he'd also threatened her with a butterfly-type knife. He'd been arrested, charged and bailed for this pending trial on December the 2nd of the same year, whilst his wife had also taken out an injunction against him, forbidding him to come nearer. However, whilst he was still on bail for this, in September 1985 he had telephoned Margaret and pleaded with her to come and meet him to talk, which she'd eventually agreed to despite the injunction. Once she met him, outside a railway station in North London no less, these talks, which was to later claim amounted to him asking her to drop the charges against him, soon descended into abuse and aggression from him when she told him she wouldn't, and when she left, he followed her back to the home of her new boyfriend. He then forced his way into the house and produced a spring-loaded kosh, which he attacked both with, requiring each being hospitalised with serious head injuries. Once again arrested following this, 
and charged with a further offence of malicious wounding, despite police opposition, he was again bailed when he appeared at West Acton Crown Court on 19th of September of that year. So it was for this, sexual assault and violence, plus he lived in the area, plus he was an A secretor, that Duffy had found himself added to the Z list, albeit some way down at number 1594. But the hearing for him to appear before a court on the charges he was then on bail for kept being delayed, at first till December the 2nd of that year. Now, there was, as we described in the first part of the arc, a rape near the Coptall Sports Centre in Mill Hill on the 20th of November by an assailant who, as we've said, was short, pockmarked in his features, had ginger hair, even a dog called Bruce with him, and that looked so much like John Duffy, it could have been him. We also want to clear up a slight point of ambiguity here. In the Two Bodies with One Brain episode, I mentioned that on the 2nd of December 1985, a man appearing at Hendon Magistrates Court was asked to take part in an identity parade, as one officer had noticed his striking similarity to this description of the Coptall attacker. Now, I can now tell you that the man was John Duffy, and his trial for the offences he'd been bailed for was delayed again here until the 5th of March 1986. But whereas I claimed he had attended an identity parade after being asked, it is equally possible that the officer who had noticed this similarity between him and the Copdall attacker had arranged for the victim in that attack to come to the court that day to see if she could identify him as her attacker, which in either case, she could not. Now the trial for the sexual attack against his wife and the charges of malicious wounding were delayed once again when March 1986 came around, but Duffy did come to police attention again just over two months later. On Monday May the 12th 1986, Police Constable Peter Basnett and Detective Constable Pat Blees were driving past the former North Weald Station, which today forms part of the Epping Ongar Heritage Railway but was at the time a remote, barely frequented stop on the central line of the London Underground, when PC Basnett noticed a man who he recognised, because in company with Detective Inspector Tom Brazil, he had the previous year interviewed the man concerning the alleged rape of his estranged wife. When PC Basnett had stopped and asked the man, John Francis Duffy, what he was doing there, some 25 miles from his home in Kilburn, Duffy had answered that he was on his way to visit a friend who lived in nearby Ongar, giving the officer a name. But remembering the details of Margaret Duffy's description of the offence, the fact that she'd claimed he'd threatened her with a butterfly knife during the assault, plus putting such a person at a remote railway station, the officer's spidey senses were working overtime, and he asked Duffy if he would object to being searched, to which Duffy agreed. From inside the pockets of Duffy's jacket, the officer produced a silver-handled butterfly knife and a swan vesta box of matches that was stuffed with tissues. When asked to account for these items, Duffy claimed that the knife was one that he used in the martial arts classes he attended near his home in Kilburn, and that he had it with him, I quote, for cutting knots in my shoelaces. The tissues in the matchbox, meanwhile, were to stop the matches rattling, he claimed. Yes, indeed. 
Now both officers thought these as bollocks excuses as they sound, and you or I undoubtedly think, and Duffy was arrested and taken to North Weald Police Station, where these items were recorded on his custody sheet. This arrest resulted in him being bailed to attend West Hendon Police Station, where he was charged with carrying an offensive weapon, although for his third arrest in less than a year, and it being noted that he was still currently on bail for the previous two offences, he was once again allowed bail, and this is despite strong police opposition to this. Recorder Peter Archer QC, who had held the position of Solicitor General for England and Wales from 1974 to 1979, was later to receive severe criticism for this, as the events of just six days after Duffy's arrest were to later reveal. Now by only shortly after this, detectives from Operation Heart working their way down the list of Z-Men A-Secretors had reached suspect number 1594, John Francis Duffy, but each time they'd called around to speak to him for the purposes of elimination, he'd not been in, and it was on to the next one on the list. It finally resulted in Detective Constable Peter Kelly putting a note through the door requesting that he attend West Hendon Police Station for an interview which Duffy finally did on the 17th of July, in the presence of a solicitor. When he'd attended, it's reported that Duffy was somewhat, I quote, too glib in his answers to police. He went out of his way to try and be too helpful, but before that, both DC Kelly and his colleague, DC Andrew Cody, had separately been struck by the same thing, so much so that they halted the interview on a pretense and went outside of the interview room to discuss the unspoken thought between them. It was the way he would stare when talking, the penetrating blue eyes of John Duffy, almost laser-like, were just one feature of his similarity to tallied descriptions of one of the attackers in the Heart series, and the very telltale fact that out of everyone that had been spoken to up to that point on the Z-Men list, although it was his right to refuse, of course, Duffy had been the only one so far who refused to give any body samples, blood, saliva or hair. Now why would you do this with nothing to hide? Was this the man, or one of the men anyway, that Operation Trinity had been seeking? Once Duffy had left the station, after sharing their feelings about him with first Detective Inspector Paul Dockley, then telling their SIO, Detective Superintendent Worker was of the impression that although he was a good suspect, there were a great many as good suspects than just him also. After all, on paper he was merely charged with a sexual attack against his estranged wife, rather than a stranger, which was classed in the thinking of the time still as a domestic, and there were suspects in the Z-Men pool still that seemed higher. On paper, anyway. But, respecting his team's instincts, a no-nonsense, not-above-himself boss Detective Superintendent Worker was, the following day, he sent them to the police station nearest to Duffy's address in Kilburn to check for his card with the collator there, the officer at each nick who is responsible for all of the intelligence in the division, a bit like the Oracle in the Matrix, you know. The two detectives were back on the phone to the incident room within an hour of heading over there, because what they discovered had to have been the coincidence to end all coincidences. After he had left West Hendon Nick earlier the previous day, 
The previous evening, the same John Francis Duffy had headed into Hampstead Police Station in a state of clear distress, claiming that he had just been brutally assaulted and mugged, and showing signs that he indeed had been the victim of an attack. There were marks to his face where he appeared to have been punched or kicked, and a slash mark that had been inflicted with a knife or a razor ran across his chest. He was now also claiming amnesia as a result of the attack, to the point where he could not even remember his own name. I mean, what are the odds of that, eh? Unluckiest bloke in the world, or what? So severe were the effects of this apparent amnesia, that as a result, John Duffy was duly sectioned, and was voluntarily taken as an inpatient to the former Fryan Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in the North London district of Fryan Barnet. And when police went down there to ascertain this, now thinking that this man was worth a much closer look, because that's some hell of a coincidence, isn't it? They were told by doctors there that because Duffy had been sectioned, he was unfit to be interviewed, as they feared he may be further agitated and distressed by the experience. So, although he was a good suspect for them, he wasn't going anywhere all the time that he was an inpatient there, and parking him mentally, the team cracked on with concentrating elsewhere and looking at other suspects on the list. By now, this consisted of speaking to people apart from those on the Z-Men list, identifying known sex offenders and ascertaining the blood group if it wasn't known by the taking of blood and saliva samples. Those who were identified as A-secretors were then further scrutinised. Their house would be searched looking for any weaponry, swan vesta matches, the all-important somyarn string, and their alibis for the dates of the Trinity offences checked. Surveillance was also carried out at a number of railway stations across the North London area, favouring those that were unmanned or that were that much more remote ones similar to the likes of Hackney Wick and Brookman's Park. We were always concerned that this man would strike again, so we decided to take the attack to him. We mounted a surveillance operation each weekend at unmanned railway stations by bussing hundreds of police officers like the British Transport Police to these southeast regional stations where we felt passengers were at risk. Everything was going fine until one Sunday, a Sunday newspaper decided to reveal the surveillance operation. Now that was a shame, because you never ever know with an operation of this magnitude when it's going to pay off. It can pay off at any moment, any day. And there we are, we've had this exposed by a newspaper and we have uh, wasted a lot of the public's money. Yeah, seriously, yeah. Officers would also keep a close eye on any new lines of inquiry, any reports of further attacks that may be a possible link to Trinity, and by September, while studying a report from Scotland Yard that showed undetected rape patterns across London, created by a system called Crime Pattern Analysis, the team now had a further possible 40 attacks they could add to those identified by Operation Heart. But one attack in particular stood out to the keen eye of Detective Superintendent Hurst. It was an attack at the rear of the Coptall Sports Centre in Mill Hill in November of the previous year, as I described in the Two Bodies with One Brain episode, which had resulted in a good description of the attacker and his dog Bruce too. The attack following which, 
on the 2nd of December, the victim had been taken to Hendon Magistrates Court to see if she could identify a man there, attending court for a bail hearing that an officer believed was a striking likeness to the artist's impression of her attacker, though this wasn't yet known by the Trinity team. A man named John Francis Duffy. To Detective Superintendent Hurst, though, the factors between the similarity of the crime scene and methodology used in the Coptor attack and that of Martyr's murder were too strongly paralleled, and convinced that this was the man he was hunting, he sent a team of officers down to London to make inquiries. Once here, they checked veterinary records to see anybody who had a dog named Bruce, they made inquiries around stables and riding establishments, armed with the likeness of the Copdall attacker, theorising that due to his small stature, he could even be a jockey, and they patrolled established dog walking areas, thinking that a dog has to be walked each day, and human nature is to use areas familiar to them regularly. You don't set out to walk a different way somewhere every single day, do you? They also made inquiries with the collators at police stations in the area, and at West Hendon, the collator there showed one of the officers a picture of a man that he believed strongly could be a match for the likeness. One of my DCs went to the local intelligence office at West Hendon Police Station, where he obtained a description uh, of a man who fitted the description of the person responsible for the coptal rape. His name was John Duffy, and he was in their records because of an assault on his wife. And because of his description, I felt he was the best suspect we'd had at this stage. So now looking further into Duffy, aside from the sexual attack on his estranged wife that he was currently on bail for, it was found that he had several minor brushes with the law some years before, for theft and for, along with a friend, shooting at people with an air rifle in the 1970s, although he had no history of indecency bar the attack on Margaret Duffy. It wasn't lost on them either that Duffy's address a first-floor flat in the Barlow Road area of Kilburn in northwest London was smack-bang in the area that had been pinpointed as being the most likely for the offender to live in by the profile that had been created by Professor Cantor. Now add to this that Duffy was a martial arts fanatic, was a former carpenter, for British Rail no less, and that following a check of his work record revealed that for several occasions on dates and times that corresponded with a number of the attacks, he'd either been unemployed as he was currently, but when in employment, he'd either been on annual leave or off sick on these dates. Now his spidey senses would beginning to tingle overtime here, right? Comparing Duffy with the psychological profile had shot him right up the list to the top. But of course, he was at the time in a psychiatric hospital in Fryan Barnet as an inpatient with amnesia. Or was he? Head forward now to the afternoon of Tuesday the 21st of October and to the town of Watford, some 15 miles northwest of London. At 4.30pm, a 14-year-old schoolgirl was making her way home along a footpath near to the railway lines of Watford Junction Station when a short, ginger-haired man approached her and asked her the time. Before she could answer, he'd forced her off the path and into a wooded area nearby, telling her, You've got to help me, the police are after me. Producing a knife, 
the man forced the girl to the ground and after tearing off her tights, cut them up into sections, with which he then tied her hands behind her back and created a blindfold for her. She was then raped by the man, though the blindfold was to slip during the assault, allowing the girl to notice that the man had severely pockmarked skin. When he'd finished the assault, he gave the girl tissues with which to wipe herself clean of any forensic evidence that he'd left, which he then burned before fleeing. When news of this attack reached the Operation Trinity incident room, Detective Superintendent Hurst was to describe years later. I was sure that it was the same man who'd struck again. And of course, the description of the attacker was the same as the man Duffy, who we were looking at for the cocktail. It had all the hallmarks of an attack by the same man, who by now the chief suspect for being was John Francis Duffy, but he was at the time in a psychiatric hospital as a voluntary patient, so how could he have been out raping in Watford? A check with the hospital revealed that, sure enough, John Duffy was still a patient there, but an outpatient, which he'd been made after having made enough progress following a month there to be able to attend just two or three days each week. So where police had thought him to have been a full-time patient, he had in fact been part-time for weeks, including over October the 21st. John Hurst was to explain two years later. Clearly, we would only get one chance and one chance only to do the job properly and interview him uh, at some length. Otherwise, uh, the thing would fail. And I did not want to just go and arrest him as a suspect uh, without having a look at his mode of living. Uh, and with that, I decided to have a 12-man surveillance team uh, look at him uh, for the next two, two or three weeks. Beginning then on the 11th of November, a 12-strong team shadowed John Duffy around the clock. From the moment he left his flat until he returned, a team of officers were clamped to his arse like a bad course of the farmers. Everywhere he went, everything he did and everyone he interacted with was logged and reported back to the incident room daily. But after almost two weeks of this, it became clear from his behaviour that Duffy had realised at some point that he was under surveillance. Whenever he went out, he was a habitual user of trains. It's unclear as to whether he'd retained his British Rail Pass that would allow him to travel the network for free. But the extensive knowledge that he'd gained over of the railway network during his years employed there would now come to the fore and allow Duffy to thwart the surveillance. He would be up and down escalators, he would suddenly about face change directions from where he was clearly heading and often would run to catch trains, at least on one occasion leaping onto a train as the doors were closing, whilst another time he jumped from an overground train while it was still moving, albeit slowly. On the morning of 23rd of November 1986, the surveillance team noticed that Duffy, who up to that point had had a full moustache and beard, was completely clean-shaven. Apparently, over the years, he would periodically alternate between these two looks. And when this was reported back to Detective Superintendent Hurst, he was convinced that this, an attempt to disguise and distance himself, along with his attempts to shake off his perceived pursuers, amounted to only one thing. He was planning another attack. 
After tailing Duffy throughout the day, it was noted that he was still out very late into the evening and by 11pm he'd made his way to Coptall Park, almost to the very same spot where, the previous November, the 22-year-old woman had been raped by a man who looked very, very much like him. Here, he loitered about, as far as he was concerned, unseen. When this had been reported back to the incident room, it was considered enough was enough, and at 11.30pm, members of the surveillance team that he of course hadn't managed to shake off at all, approached him and arrested him. He was then taken to Guildford Police Station, where officers from Surrey, Hertfordshire and the Met got set to question him, whilst another team were dispatched to carry out a full search of his home. Now this search was to discover a whole plethora of things that equated to an extensive arsenal if you like, and provided several more ticks on Professor Cantor's profile. There was a sizeable collection of knives and weaponry, including those used in martial arts, a large collection of violent pornography and violent video nasties, and also a copy of a controversial 2 million plus selling book called The Anarchist's Cookbook, a 1971 published manual that contained guides for all manner of grisly and diabolical things to do, like how to manufacture crude explosives, or poisons and illicit drugs, as well as techniques for overpowering people, including using methods such as garroting. Point to note here, the book was authored by a man named William Powell, who five years after its publication reportedly converted to Anglicanism and spent the remainder of his life before his death in 2016 fighting for the book to be suppressed. Unsuccessfully, I may add. How bizarre is that, eh? Also in a drawer of a sideboard in Duffy's flat, aside from the collection of knives and Enter the Dragon type weaponry, were a large number of single door keys some 33 in all when counted, and a box of Swan Vesta matches containing eight matches and stuffed with a wad of blue tissue paper. What have you got to say about this lot then, Mr Duffy? Well, pretty much bugger all, really, because when anything of a nature involving the offences was put to him, he would mostly claim simply that he couldn't remember because he had amnesia after all. Other times he would give the daftest of excuses, for example, as we'd heard, and asked why tissue paper was in the matchbox, Duffy would claim that it was to stop the matches rattling, that type of thing. There was a period of some 36 hours that he could be held for without charge, so he was interviewed fairly extensively, yet yielded nothing. John Hurst was later to recall, a quote, His body language in itself certainly suggested guilt, and also, at no stage did he actually dispute or deny anything. He didn't say he did do these crimes, and he didn't say he didn't do them. He just insisted he couldn't remember anything. But yet for some stuff, he would talk quite happily about for ages. Former Detective Inspector Paul Dockley recalled in an interview with author Simon Farquhar years later. He just made no comment answers to anything relevant. He was happy to talk about his martial arts, but he was making out he was away with the fairies so didn't answer any of the questions we put to him, and believe me, we asked him everything. It was the most laborious interview I've ever known. It started off at four in the afternoon, and finished off at two the next morning. 
On Tuesday the 25th of November, at 11.10am, a special hearing before Magistrate at Guildford was held, at which the chairperson of the bench, Lady Hemsworth, granted police a further 60 hours to hold Duffy, which meant the police could move on to the next phase of their operation. Now, as we've said, they'd been looking at Duffy and comparing him with a profile created by Professor Cantor that had raised him to such prominence, and realised with astonishment that sure enough, he was ticking box after box on it. In total, out of 17 different characteristics that Professor Cantor had profiled about the killer, John Duffy fitted 13 of them. He lived in the target area, thought likely, the centre of gravity. He was 28 years old, so well within the 20 to 30 age range predicted. He had worked as a carpenter, that's the skilled or semi-skilled occupation ticked. He was physically small, just 5 foot 4 inches tall and had severe acne, thus felt himself unattractive. He was a member of a martial arts club and had bodybuilding equipment in his flat. He had an extensive collection of knives and weaponry, as well as lots of violent pornography and horror movies. And he was married, of course, but the marriage was almost at an end. Raping your wife and attacking her and a new partner kind of signals that, doesn't it? Speaking to Duffy's estranged wife, Margaret, was also an eye-opener for police. She came out with tales of how he would fantasise strongly about rape and bondage and had a habit of tying her hands before sex, enjoying it more as she struggled against her bonds. So adept had he become at doing this, that he could apparently fasten her hands with one hand, and always behind her, in a very specific way. He felt a need to dominate her, he'd been violent towards her on several occasions in the past, which had increased in frequency when the couple discovered, in 1982, that Duffy had a low sperm count, meaning he was unable to father a child. So tick after tick after tick against these points on this profile. But the clencher for police, the one thing that convinced them more than anything that this was their man, it was when Margaret Duffy told them that one evening, her husband had given her a Walkman that he claimed he'd taken from a woman. He then told Margaret, chillingly, I raped a girl tonight, and it was all your fault. At the time, she thought this was just an idle boast. How chilling is that, eh? And then, there was something else to top this. With Duffy under arrest, once his flat had been searched extensively, the searcher then moved on to his parents' house in the Lawn Road area of Hampstead. All of Duffy's clothes that he had in a wardrobe here were seized and taken for forensic examination, but the search was to reveal something else. An officer examining a pedal bin in the downstairs toilet found a large reel of string that looked familiar. It looked familiar because it had been an extensive line of inquiry since the murder of Marty Tamboza in April of that year. Everything about it was extensively analysed, the width, thickness, weight, composition, everything, and it was confirmed as being exactly what the officers knew instinctively it would be. It was a roll of some yarn. Now yet another part of the profile that Duffy ticked was that he indeed had just two close friends that he did a lot with. One of these was a younger man and fellow martial arts enthusiast named Ross Mockeridge, and the other, the other was his best friend, a friend of his since their school days, who he shared interests and spent countless hours with, 
who he'd gotten into scrapes with the law with, and who was described as being inseparable from. A taller friend. At 10.20pm on Tuesday the 25th of November, Duffy's taller friend was arrested and taken to Guildford Police Station for questioning by detectives from Operation Trinity, where he quietly and confidently offered that their friendship, although it was strong in school, had somewhat waned by 1986. Further, he offered alibis for the times of each murder, and although an extension to his custody was applied for and a further 24 hours granted, by the end of this, there was no evidence for police to bring any charges against him, and he was released from custody. Unhappily so by police, I must add, because they were sure that this was the taller rapist who had brought terror to women across North London over the previous four years. They just couldn't prove it. When his clothing was returned to him following his release, the officer tasked with returning it, Keith Hyder, even reportedly told him, One day, I'll be knocking on your door again. The taller man had just smirked, then laughed, and shut the door in his face. Meanwhile, detectives had attempted to get as many of the victims from the attacks linked under Operation Trinity to attend Guildford Police Station to undertake an identity parade, on which at number five stood John Francis Duffy. Back in those days, there was no one-way glass a person was stood behind to try and identify an individual. They had to physically walk along the line and go right up and point or touch the individual they recalled, if they thought he or she were there, of course. Now, this must have been a horrendous experience for anyone who was a victim of such a terrible and terrifying assault to have to undertake that, for it would proper bring the horror right back home, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? And thankfully... Today, it's a different and much more sensitive experience altogether. Now, not all of the victims from the Heart series were able to attend this. For example, some of them had long since returned back to their native countries, or some were even unwilling to. But of those who did, no less than five of these women picked out the same person as their attacker, John Francis Duffy. Now the evidence against Duffy in the Tambosia murder was strong, as it was in five of the rapes, but with the two other murders, not so much, as Anne's body was far too decomposed for any forensic evidence to be gleaned from it, and Alison's body had been submerged in a canal for 17 days, which also negated any forensic evidence. It wasn't helped either by the fact that Duffy was still maintaining this amnesia claim, thus offering no alibis that may be shot down and would thus build the case against him further. But on this front, there was shortly to be a breakthrough, as the friend of Duffy's named Ross Mockeridge, who had also been arrested as a result of inquiries, but released without charge, was to come forward with a quite remarkable story. Late in the afternoon of the 17th of July of that year, Mockeridge claimed that Duffy had called around to his home in a state of extreme agitation. When he'd calmed some, he explained that he'd witnessed something, he wouldn't reveal what, that had put two mercenaries after him and who had threatened to frame him for a crime. His only hope was to fake that he'd been beaten up and as a result had lost his memory. Now reluctant and refusing to do this, Duffy had desperately gone on at Mockeridge until finally he had caved 
and agreed to do what was asked of him, to punch Duffy in the face and to slash his chest with a razor. Once this had been done, Duffy had then made a pact with him for each of them to say nothing, and then it was off to Hampstead Police Station before a spell in Fryan Hospital. Mockeridge made a sworn and signed statement to this effect also, meaning this amnesia bollocks was now effectively dead in the water, and yet Duffy still clung to this, claiming when anything was put to him, or any items of evidence shown to him to get him to attempt to explain them away, that he simply couldn't remember. By now, looking guiltier than Matt Hancock, however, on the 30th of November 1986, John Francis Duffy was charged with five rapes, those of the series that the, the victims had identified him as their attacker in, as well as the murders of Alison Day, Marcia Tamboza, and Anne Locke. He was committed for trial at the Old Bailey on the 24th of June 1987, with the trial set to take place at the beginning of 1988. Following Duffy being charged, however, Detective Chief Superintendent Vincent McFadden had contacted Professor Cantor to congratulate him on a job well done, the profile that had turned out to be so accurate, an invaluable tool that had highlighted Duffy ultimately as suspect number one. And it truly had turned out to be remarkable, it had surprised everyone, but perhaps none more so than Professor Cantor, whose career it helped to shape and transform into that of a celebrated and influential behavioural psychologist. If you ever get chance to read any of his books, and I recommend both Criminal Shadows and Mapping Murder most highly, then I hope that you would, for they make fascinating reading, they really do. I also, as I've said before, also had the pleasure of recently having a conversation with a retired detective who'd worked on Operation Bluebell. And she recalled to me both the absolute feeling that everyone involved in the inquiry had that this profile was something groundbreaking and the elation, and that was the exact word that she used, that was felt by the inquiry staff when it turned out to be so astonishingly accurate. How amazing is that, eh? Now, we are past midway through the thriller arc by this point, I think anyway and still have an unbelievable amount to come with it too. It's got twists like a bent corkscrew this tale does, I tell you. But with Duffy parked up on remand awaiting trial, this is a perfect place to leave it for this time around. It's fitted just lovely too. We shall pick up the pieces of it next time around then, which I shall zip off and begin doing right now. I welcome any feedback from you as ever, or if you wish to discuss the case to date, then there's a thread up on the Facebook discussion group for you to do so, or you can get in touch too through any of the show social media links. You know where to find me by now all. I thank you very much for joining me for the episode, and with that, all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.